Hey, San Francisco, I'm Ben Kaplan, and this is the podcast where we define who we are and who we want to be. We are diverse. We are innovative. We are inclusive. We are change makers. Problem solvers. Activists. Leaders. Citizens. We are open-minded. Optimistic. There's hope for a better tomorrow. And you, and you, and you, gotta give them hope. This is the podcast that's more than a podcast. San Francisco, they are the world champions. San Francisco. Hey, San Francisco. Today I'm chatting with Kanishka Cheng. She's currently the founder and executive director of Together SF, a prominent San Francisco nonprofit funded by famed venture capitalist Michael Moritz that tackles key city issues like the drug crisis, homelessness, and crime. Kanishka is unique in the city because she's an SF triple threat. She served in the city's executive branch in the mayor's office, in the legislative branch as an aide to board of supervisor members, and in multiple government agencies. She's drawn upon that wealth of experience in city government to create both political and charitable community-based nonprofit organizations. So what can we do to reverse the deadly impact of fentanyl? And how can we make San Francisco city government operate more efficiently and effectively? Let's find out with Kanishka Cheng. Nishka, one of the things I love about your background and also think is a super interesting perspective is that you've played a role in many different important stakeholders in the future of San Francisco. You've been a legislative aide to a member of the Board of Supervisors. You've been in the mayor's office where one of your roles was a liaison to the Board of Supervisors. And now you run a well-known nonprofit that is very visible in the city and taking a lot of action steps. So For those who don't know it as well as you do, who holds the power in SF? How do we get things done and why does everyone seem to be fighting? That's a great way to start. Thanks for having me on. So who holds the power in SF? I think the harsh truth is that the power is held by so many different people that no one is really in charge and therefore no real decision can get made unilaterally and no one can really be held accountable for that because everybody has the opportunity to point a finger at somebody else and say, well, if they hadn't done this, I wouldn't have to do this. Or I can't do this because they're blocking me from doing this. In fact, just in the news this week, the mayor was at the Board of Supervisors meeting and it was back and forth and it almost sounded a little personal. Back and forth and saying, oh, they don't want to talk. They're not showing up at meetings. And then the other side says, well, you're the one who doesn't want to talk. You don't want to show up at meetings. Is that inevitable because of how San Francisco is structured or is it the personalities involved or why is it like that? It's a combination of the two. Definitely San Francisco's structure. Our organization's big mission goal overall is to reform the structure of San Francisco's government because we think the structure is so broken that it has these twisted and perverse incentives that kind of lead people to behaving this way. And then on top of that, we have San Francisco that's known as like this political battlefield nationally, that it attracts people who are just really by nature, very political, believe in aggressive advocacy and really do see politics as a career. And they want to start here in San Francisco because we have this pattern of San Francisco local elected officials climbing that Democratic Party ladder all the way to the White House. And so everybody that wants to do politics comes to San Francisco because it is it fosters that kind of behavior, I think, because of the structure and environment. But it's interesting because you would think we're all Democrats. There should be alignment. So why is it and for someone that doesn't know it as intimately well as you, like, why is there such a progressive, moderate divide. And I've spoken to a lot of people, I've interviewed people for the show, and they're like, people call me this and I'm not this, and I don't know how to say it. And and people will say, I'm the furthest thing from a Donald Trump supporter. And yet people will say, ah, you're a secret Donald Trump supporter. We were all Democrats. Why is that where there should be more alignment, yet it's not? We just want to debate, we want to fight, so we just find ways to have more division? Absolutely, I completely agree with you. I think that most San Franciscans agree on like 95% of the things. It's that 5% that we disagree on. That's what we focus all of our energy on is amplifying those fights. I think it all comes back to the way the DCCC is run in San Francisco. That's the Democratic County Central Committee. It's the local chapter of the Democratic Party. It's an elected body. We talk a lot about this in our SF Politics 101 event, which is like a good primer for you kind of understanding the landscape here in San Francisco. But that body is made up of elected officials who are currently in other seats. 
And it's pretty much owned by the left faction of the Democratic Party, by the far left progressives in San Francisco. So they make a lot of endorsements that have ripple effects across all of the elections. Um, And because control of that body is so instrumental in election outcomes, it creates this very like moderate Democrat versus progressive Democrat fighting environment. And then the other thing to remember, I think, is like even a moderate San Francisco Democrat is still a far left Democrat by national standards. Right. So we are extremely close. But the things we fight about are just the minutiae around the edges that I think are more about holding on to power or just extreme ideology and not being willing to compromise. What do you think are issues that if we didn't pick sides and teams and we're kind of like, no, 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 we're all on the same team. That would be so much easier to solve. I know together SF, you have a mandate, you're in a number of different issues right now. It looks like you're focused a lot on drug crisis, fentanyl crisis. If we didn't pick sides and made which side you're on so important, what could we do that would better lives if we weren't so polarized? So let's look at the drug crisis as an example here. We have one side talking about a more harm reduction based approach. Let's look at what Portugal is doing. They've decriminalized. They have safe consumption sites. They've managed their drug crisis very well. And we as an organization would agree Portugal has done a really good job and we'd love to move towards the Portugal model. But the Portugal model also includes a role for law enforcement. It includes um, it has not decriminalized drug trafficking and drug sales. Drug use is addressed through administrative citations. Um, There is a role for safe consumption sites, but it means that people don't use drugs in public anywhere else. They come to the sites. So all of these additional pieces are just not on the table in San Francisco. Um, The biggest problem is we don't have that social and political consensus around a full, a true Portugal approach would get us out of this crisis, I think. But instead we have the advocates on one side saying, We only want harm reduction. We only want safe consumption sites. We don't want a role for police at all in this. That's not actually the Portugal model, right? So people are picking and choosing what parts of the response that has worked in other places that they want to have here. Um, And I think that is where we end up fighting. And if we could see like, actually, we're both saying the same thing. Let's find some middle ground. Let's find some compromise. We could actually address this crisis. What's interesting is If you look at other cities that have solved really hard things, like homelessness in Houston, they've made a lot of progress. Housing access in San Diego, they've made a lot of progress. We're leveraging a ton of federal money during the pandemic in a way that San Francisco wasn't. What you usually see is that a couple things. One, there's alignment. If it's hard, if it's complex, usually one person, one group can't solve it. So you see alignment. You also see focus. Whether you talk about, for instance, if you're talking about homelessness in Houston, you know, they had a real like housing first approach, which mainly meant we're going to focus on getting people who don't have housing, housing, and we're not going to try to solve all of poverty all at once because that's really hard. Let's just focus things. So you see alignment, you have focus, and then you see some type of simplification of the solution. Why? Because government bureaucracies are complex. And even if it's like brilliant idea, but like hard to implement, which may may describe some things in San Francisco, you can't get it done. So we have those examples and we're like, okay, we got to be aligned. We got to make things simple. We got to stay focused, but aligned, simple, focused doesn't sound like I'm describing San Francisco right now. So what would it take? Whose job is it? Is that the mayor's job? Should we not be waiting for elected officials? Is it the community's job to get aligned? Is it the board of supervisors needs to come together and be like having dinner every week, doing some trust falls together? Who gets us there if that's the model that we see that works? I think it takes both sides giving a little bit. That's how you find compromise, right? And right now we have two sides where... Everybody thinks they're giving, but probably no one's giving enough to meet in the middle. We have one member on the board of supervisors who has said as recently as January that compromise should not be a value that we strive for at the board of supervisors. So that kind of is a line in the sand, right? That they're not here to compromise on issues. And I think then the mayor becomes put, gets put in a very awkward position where it's like, well, they don't want to compromise with me. So I have to try to force things through. And I think that's why we don't have that alignment. Now, the focus, I think, is because we have this massive bureaucracy, right? We have a 14 plus billion dollar budget. We have like 30,000 something employees. 
And it just continues to grow and grow and grow without anybody coming in and saying, what's actually working and what's not working? What can we cut? What can we streamline? What can we make more efficient? These are just things that our government is not good at. And I think a lot of this comes back to those perverse incentives that I mentioned. The, the example that I think most about is if you're a member of the Board of Supervisors or you're even on the City College Board or Board of Education, in San Francisco, you're thinking about your next step in that political ladder. Very few people are thinking about how to solve the current problems on hand. They're always thinking about how am I going to secure my next election? What am I going to do now? But why? I mean, it seems like the best way to secure your next election is do a great job in your current role. Yes, I agree. I mean, there is only one person on the Board of Supervisors right now who has ever held a job outside of working for the city or for a nonprofit that worked for the city. So... Just think about that for a second. Nobody has any other job experience. There's nothing else that they can do except politics and government. So they're always thinking about what's the next job, what's the next role within this ecosystem that I can have. We would be healthier if it was a more diverse in every sense of the word. We just want different perspectives, opinions coming together. If it was a diverse body in terms of experience, by any measure, we would be better off. Absolutely. Because the biggest thing is, Right now, because everybody's experience is only in San Francisco government, when they get told why we can or can't do something, they don't have a counterexample to compare that to. They don't have the frame of reference to think about, well, when I worked at this company, we were able to do it faster or we would have done it this way. They, they just don't have that, that sense of comparison. And I'm speaking from my experience from working in the building that that's what it was like. And when I left, and I started working with people from the private sector, people who had done startups, people who worked in nonprofits that were more efficient. It was kind of mind blowing to see how quickly they expect things to move, how um, how quickly they respond to things, how there isn't as much, you know, spend six months studying something before we take an action. And at the city, they only know that approach. They don't think about other approaches. And part of it is that government has an obligation and a role to do um, public outreach and accept public comment and bring the public along. But they also have a responsibility to be leaders, right? And to say, we've studied it. This is what needs to happen. This is what will be the best for the most people that are dealing with this problem. So we're going to do it now. Instead, what we see is a lot of hemming and hawing because, because of those incentives to get elected to your next thing. Everybody's scared to upset any one group. Even if that one group is a minority of voters, there's a lot of fear of pissing people off. So that's one part of the problem. Then I think the other incentive is if you are on the board of supervisors, you want to run for mayor one day or you want to become an assembly member or a state senator, um, you need to get your name ID out. That's what primarily people vote on are names that they recognize. They very rarely do more research than that. So the way you get your name idea is you get your name in the press a lot because then people start remembering your name. They hear it, right? So the way you get your name in the press is you make big, bold statements. You, you present yourself as oppositional to the mayor who's always in the press because they are the mayor. That's the perverse incentive I see with the Board of Supervisors and the mayor. Members of the board are kind of incentivized to be oppositional to the mayor so they can present themselves as also a leader, but with a different perspective. You're someone who, as I mentioned, has made an impact in many different ways and many different types of organizations. What is the best way to do it now? Like if you want to make an impact, I mean, should you just start volunteering for things and getting to know what people are doing? Should you, you know, you founded your own 501c3 and now 501c4, which we'll talk about. Should you go found your own organization? Should you get involved in community benefit districts or other things that are other important stakeholders in this? Heck, should you run for office? Should you run for the board of supervisors? If you're listening, I mean, I think one of our missions for this podcast is get way more people involved. I think come to one of our events, sign up for our newsletter, get informed about what's happening in this city. There are many organizations that have cropped up during the pandemic, right, to try to get people more engaged in the city. I think that we present a very unique perspective of people who have worked for the city, worked in the building, worked in city departments, worked for election officials that see this problem very uniquely. And we know that the best way to change things is to amplify more resident voices. And so you getting involved can literally look like you just coming to an event or you sending an email to City Hall 
to say this is what matters to me. I think the biggest way to move the needle right now is to show up consistently. 2023 is not an election year, but it sets us up for a very big election year next year in 2024. There are a lot of important elections next year. And so starting to get engaged and informed this year will have huge impacts. Just, you know, our Fend to Life, our ad campaign, our efforts around the drug crisis, the ad campaign was designed to engage people to send an email to the Board of Supervisors and the mayor around the city's budget. So this is a hugely impactful part of the year where the city is setting its budget, which is its policy priorities for the next year, right? So you sending an email on that makes a big difference because during this budget process, which is very insular, pretty opaque, it moves quickly, it's too hard for the general public to track. Sending an email right now and getting engaged right now is impactful because traditionally the only people engaged in that process are the nonprofit groups who want to get their contracts funded, lobbyists who want to make sure their clients are well represented in the budget. And that's pretty much it. There is rarely, very rarely, a large scale engagement from just residents who want certain policy outcomes and do not have a specific financial gain coming out of the budget. And just to sort of unpack this campaign, because it did generate headlines, it was it did what it was designed to do, which is get attention and shock people a little bit. Describe the ads in this campaign that was called That's Fentalife for people that weren't in really the areas where, you know, it was really, it looks like targeted at places where, where fentanyl addiction drug crisis is really like front and center. And it's super interesting to hear you say that actually the goal was to influence the budget process, but we're going to do this, you know, kind of consumer ad campaign. So Take us through what were the ads saying and when did this idea start? How long did it take to sort of develop this? We actually did it in a very, very fast timeline. We had been working on the drug crisis since January through public engagement events, teaching people about what's happening. And since January, we've been mobilizing people to send emails to City Hall, asking them to prioritize addressing the drug crisis. We didn't always said was the supply side needs to be addressed through law enforcement. The demand side needs to be addressed with more treatment available. And we need to have both of these solutions happen together. And then we knew the budget process was coming up and we knew to really be impactful on the budget process. We need to show a citywide coalition. It can't just be from the neighborhoods that are feeling it the most because frankly, the supervisors don't have an incentive to represent districts that they're not accountable to, right? So you need every supervisor to feel the pressure of this crisis. So an ad campaign seems like the best way to get everybody in the city engaged and talking about it, especially when it generates press, right? Which I think we were successful in doing. Now, the impetus for the ad campaign, the creative behind it was actually a creative team that uh, came up with the concept pro bono because they are also longtime San Franciscans that care about what's happening in the city. And this was, I think, a way for them to give back. Um, so they came up with the ad concept. And if you see the ads, they look cheerful and bright. There's rainbow colors. There's like a retro happy font. All of that was designed to be a play on what we think of as the California lifestyle. People come to California. They come to San Francisco for its beauty, for its outdoors, um, healthy lifestyle, the innovation, the technology that's here. And they come here and reality doesn't always meet that expectation, especially right now in San Francisco in certain neighborhoods. And so we also know that the city that we as residents have sort of normalized what's happening. We've kind of accepted it. We turn our heads because it's honestly too hard to look at. And we wanted the ad campaign to be a sharp contrast with that. And we think we achieved that given the design of it, right? Like it does grab your eye especially when it's on the side of buildings in the Tenderloin across from playgrounds where there are security guards around it so that kids can play in it, right? Um, now, we did launch it in the Tenderloin and in Selma where the drug markets are most prevalent, but there are now uh, billboards in the Mission, in the Richmond. We did posters throughout the city. Um, we'll be launching digital ads very soon that will be around the city too. And all of this is just throughout this month to get people engaged on the budget process. So for people who don't know exactly how the budget process works, the mayor proposes a budget. It's reviewed by the board of supervisors who maybe negotiates things or changes things, and it's ultimately approved. Why does it matter what everyone in the city thinks, other than we want to get community involved? 
why is pressure from them important if like, hey, the mayor already proposed the budget. You could have been lobbying the mayor. Just, you know, let's get more money in. You can lobby the board of supervisors and say, hey, approve this, approve this, approve this. Why is it important that the 800,000 plus people are engaged and behind this in terms of enacting change and getting your desired outcome, which is more focused on the budget on drug crisis? It's kind of standard politics, right? Your elected representatives should respond to what you want them to do, but they don't know if you don't tell them. I think there's a real disconnect, especially from the board of supervisors and what the general public wants. If you look at polling in San Francisco, the just generally available public polling, public safety is people's number one issue. Homelessness is their second issue. But if you look to the board of supervisors, they're pretty anti-police. They've traditionally cut law enforcement budget um, and they want to shift resources away from that. And that's very out of step with what the public is saying that they want. So we need them to feel the pressure of what the public wants. And that's what sending the emails does. That's what mobilizing residents to send an email really does is makes them feel that public pressure, makes them feel like people are paying attention. And certainly our organization is going to track what they're doing and is going to remind voters whether or not they listen to them when it comes time next year for their reelections. And a good example of that would be, let's say the vote for overtime pay for police officers. Really, two, three years ago, the fact that the Board of Supervisors voted for that, even that the mayor proposed it, would have been like unthinkable because there was such a chorus for like reducing funding for the police. The catchphrase at the time that a lot of people have turned away from was defund the police and all of that. Yet, because there was such a sense of pressure to do something on crime and safety, suddenly you have this overwhelmingly approved and it goes through. So that would be a, maybe a good example of with enough focused pressure, maybe the community can lead and elected officials follow. It doesn't have to be elected officials lead and community follows. Absolutely. And that is what we do in an off year every year. You know, we have to tell them what we want. We can't expect them to just know because unfortunately they don't. So we actually mobilized over a thousand emails to be sent to support that police supplemental and it and it worked. And then, you know, they got a sense of that this is actually important to voters. And they actually approved an increase to police salaries this year without any fighting, right? It just happened. We didn't even really hear about it. We didn't have to get engaged on because we made a point about what we, the public, want, what matters to us. We're also asking the Board of Supervisors to increase more treatment options, which the mayor did a good job of, but we'd like to see more. So we know that this public pressure works. There's a lot of other things we'll be advocating for, but we kind of have to exercise our muscles as the public, our political muscles, and kind of train them that we are going to be there. This is not a one-time thing. We, the residents, are going to consistently show up. And that's how we, from the outside of, of government, can kind of guide these outcomes. And what's interesting about that is if I think about San Francisco and like community-led initiatives that sort of enacted, had dramatic results, what I kind of look to is really two things that happened fairly recently over the pandemic, which is two recalls, right? Recall of the district attorney, recall of certain members of the Board of Education. And I get the sense when talking to people who are involved in that, that it was a very unifying moment for a couple of reasons. And, and actually unifying, honestly, on both, on both sides, right? Because people differed and smart people can differ on that. But it was a unifying moment because you sort of had a unifying opponent. If I was being a little bit more sort of like crass, I would say a unifying enemy, but we're using enemy kind of strong, but in political terms, enemy, not like it could be a good person, right? So it was unifying. But then when I talked to people, it was unifying, but then things kind of dissipate somewhat after that. Because you don't have this immediate thing. It's a recall. We're rallying. And also one of the questions is, could those recalls have happened if it wasn't during the pandemic? A lot of people had time on their hands, other things to do. They were home. So what is it about almost like mobilizing against something or a unifying opponent or enemy that gets people going. And how do we keep that going when it's not, it's not a recall every day or do we just need a ton of recalls? I hope we don't need a ton of recalls. Um, our organization is working to keep that momentum going of people speaking up, people holding electeds accountable to outcomes. That's really what I saw the recalls as was an ultimate expression of voter frustration voter um, anger, frankly, about what they were seeing elected officials do. I think that given the current state of San Francisco, given that problems that were created through bad policy decisions over the last five years are going to take a lot longer to fix. And I think until we see elected officials taking those problems head on, there's always going to be that voter anger and frustration. I can tell you that 
you know, we do a lot of in-person events, not only in our space, but we go to people's homes, their offices, their small businesses. They want us to come speak to their groups. And there's still a lot of voter anger and frustration around what's happening in San Francisco. The drug crisis is, I think, like the biggest powder keg of that because it feels so visceral. I think the tent encampments, given the current lawsuit situation that's happening there, that feels very visceral to people and there's a lot of anger there. And I honestly, I hope that our organization can provide a middle ground solution so we don't swing too far to one side on either of those issues. I feel like the next couple of years is like a critical period, not only because of the election in 2024, but just there's moments when you have the collective will, the collective will to do something, and those shouldn't be squandered. And the question is, Kanishka, are we in one of those moments now? Is there enough collective will from the people to kind of spur action? We saw moments of that with the recalls and other things like that. And, you know, there's no guarantee that that's here, you know, four years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. But do you think we have it now that that could be channeled to create change because it seems like sometimes our systems are designed to protect the status quo, which is a problem when the status quo is in the wrong direction, which I think most people, no matter where you are on the spectrum, kind of feel like it's going in the wrong direction right now. I absolutely think we're in that moment right now. I think the public is super engaged, super frustrated, ready for solutions, ready for bold solutions. So actually we have been talking about, um, we do this event called Why San Francisco is Broken. And we highlight four or five structural reasons that we think it's broken and the ways that we want to change them. And so we are actually working on bringing forward a ballot measure in 2024, to start to reform the structures of San Francisco government. Because I think the time is right where people know, not only do they feel um, this sense of frustration around the conditions in the city, but they also feel like it's not easily solvable. For some reason, the city doesn't feel governable. And that's what we want to get to the heart of is can we use this opportunity, this super engaged and frustrated sentiment to get people to take a big action to help restore the governability and certainly the functionality of the city? I think to do that, in some ways it requires a, the term would be a movement, you know, a movement to do this. And that's one thing in, in my other work, I've kind of studied a lot of movements around the world. And sometimes it's a relatively surprisingly small number of people can actually create a lot of change. And I don't know if you agree with this. You know, we've not talked about this before, but in my opinion, you know, San Francisco, 800,000 plus people. If you could get 1% of San Francisco, right? That's 8,000 people aligned, doing things, taking action, whatever it is. If it's like 8,000 people show up here, 8,000 people sign this, 8,000 people, you know, write an email to your board of supervisors. 1% seems to be this threshold where that's actually a lot. I mean, some board of supervisor elections, the total number of votes isn't maybe that much more than that for one side. So to me, when I think about it, I was like, okay, 8,000 people, I mean, that's not like, that's not something you do tomorrow with no planning, but that's also not a huge number, right? That's reachable. And it seems like if we could do that, we could change everything in somewhat fast order or at least get us moving in the right direction. Absolutely. I mean, the recall started with like 20 people that signed a petition or like, you know, got it initiated. Maybe it was 30, but it's such a small number that is super committed to an issue. There is nothing more compelling for people than to hear from another person who's so passionate about an issue. So I think that we are working on building that movement of people who are so passionate about changing the course of the city, getting it back on track through some reforms and through policy advocacy. So that movement, I think definitely is necessary. And I think it is in, it is taking shape right now. What is 2024 going to look like? As you described it with a metaphor, which is 2023 sets the table, 2024, we eat the meal. What do you think you see people already declaring their candidates to certain things, posturing a little bit like, oh, that looks like that person's running. What should we expect for 2024? And can we achieve progress before then? Or is it going to be like, you got to get through this election because people are already positioning themselves for it? I think given that 2024 is such a big election year, we can expect to see progress this year. 
in a normal world, um, people who are running for election next year want to please their voters this year. They should be incentivized to be more responsive to their residents this year because they will know that if they're not, they're really putting themselves at risk next year. So in a normal world, we should be able to achieve some policy outcomes that are better this year. Now, I don't know that in San Francisco, we live in a normal political world. I will say that for sure. It does seem like there are certain members of the Board of Supervisors who are unwilling to take in public input from anybody that diverges from their personal point of view. That is, I think, the real problem. But 2024 is a huge election year. I would even call it like a generational turning point election year if Nancy Pelosi doesn't run for re-election. If she vacates her seat, it creates this whole cascade of people running for different things and a lot of people moving up the ladder around the chessboard. Um, in addition to the things we know that are going to happen, which is the mayor, the DA, each odd numbered supervisor district, three of them which are termed out. So those are seats that are completely open. That's a huge opportunity. There's a lot of stories in especially national media now that are just really, really negative towards San Francisco. Do you think that's overstated I think they are amplifying a narrative on the ground. They're only slightly overstated. Of course, like when Fox News picks it up, they're going to inflate it and overstate it. Of course they are. But we give them a lot of fodder to do that with in San Francisco. I think there is a lot of uh, sentiment from kind of the establishment of San Francisco that this is bad PR and we just need better PR. But I don't know how you get around the fact that anybody who comes here has a phone in their pocket can take a picture and put it online that's always going to be the reality. And so we do have to first address the very real problems before we can run a, a positive PR campaign. Every city has great, vibrant, thriving neighborhoods. Not every city has these destructive open-air drug markets um, and all of the associated crime that happens around that, right? Like that is an anomaly that's very real and we can't run away from that problem. I do have a ton of hope we would not exist as an organization if we didn't have hope for San Francisco's future. We talk to hundreds of people every day who are frustrated, but hopeful. And I think that is the, that is like the true spirit of San Francisco, that we are always willing to show up and fight for a brighter future. And we're not going to we're not going to give up on that. Take me through how you've structured. You have Together SF, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, which for those of you who don't know designations, that needs to be non-political. You have Together SF Action, which is a 501c4 nonprofit, which is allowed to be political as long as it's less than less than half, less than 50% of your effort and time. What do each of those things do? Why do they exist? And as one of the more funded community organizations, nonprofits in our area that's doing a lot of work. How does that all work together to put, set forward the outcomes you want? Yeah, it's actually, it's a very traditional um, model that organizations like Planned Parenthood and the Sierra Club, like everybody kind of has a C3 and a C4 and most organizations also have a PAC. We don't have a PAC. Um, and this has kind of evolved pretty organically based on what we have heard from our community, what we think they want to do. So when I left my job in City Hall, I left to start a community organization because I believed that I had to go find all of those voters, those residents in San Francisco that are in the middle that had disengaged from the process. I wanted to find them and make it easy and fun and accessible for them to re-engage with their city and their community with the theory that once they came, they came to be engaged, they would start asking questions naturally about the city and like how it's working. So we started because it was March of 2020, we started as pandemic response and that was very 501c3 nonprofit work. It was volunteers connecting them with other nonprofits to do things like grocery packing, food delivery, um, community cleanups, graffiti removal, those kinds of things. And eventually people did start asking questions um, around, well, why am I coming outside to pick up trash on this block every week. Like, what's the city doing here? Where is this disconnect? Or, you know, we really um, hit that point in the in the pandemic in the first year where schools weren't reopening. We had a lot of parents in our community who were really frustrated that the school board wouldn't even talk about reopening at their meetings. And so we were able to put together a webinar with two school board members um, to get them to come on and talk about school reopening. And because they were going to talk about it, we actually had um, about a thousand people sign up for a webinar. 
And I was just really shocked at the demand there was for this. People were coming on Zoom in the middle of the workday to hear about homelessness or the housing crisis. Very informational stuff. So there's obviously an appetite and an information gap for most voters or most residents. And so we just did only that for the first year, two years. Um, and it wasn't until last year after, so 2022, we had four elections in San Francisco in one year. It was a horrible anomaly of a year that way. Um, but after the June election, which was the third election of the year, which we had done a ballot explainer, kind of explaining both sides of every issue, we actually got a lot of feedback from our community asking us, how would you vote on this? What's your recommendation? And that felt like a really good opening to then um, launch our 501c4 together SF Action to be able to then tell people how we thought you should vote. And I think, you know, we set out to build a brand that people trusted um, before we would tell them how to vote. And I think that has really played itself out pretty well that people have, are asking for our opinion and want to engage in conversation. Um, and so that's why we launched the 501c4 last fall to produce a voter guide for the November election, which was the first election that we took positions on. We did um, a voter guide distribution program through in-person events, through house parties, through door knocking. Um, we didn't do anything digital and we relied on our community to distribute our message. And we just targeted the neighborhoods that we know our community is strongest in. And I think that was very effective in helping Joel and Guardio get elected in District 4, uh, Matt Dorsey get elected in District 6. And so now in an off year, the C4 enables us to do legislative advocacy at the Board of Supervisors. So that's what we're focusing on. The final thing I want to chat about is you've been a proponent that we need to make San Francisco government more efficient. And there are specific things we need to do to do that. What are those things? And this isn't the issues that gets all the attention. Because, you know, people focus on crime and safety as they should. People focus on homelessness. Those are very visible things. Yet, I think this is important. That's why I want to focus on it. Because if we get these kind of government efficiency structure process right, it actually makes everything else easier to solve. So what are those things that we could do to make San Francisco government be the most efficient and effective city government in the United States? What would we need to do? So um, we actually commissioned a study out of an academic institution to research it and look at what other cities do and come up with what they thought Zerso could do better. And they actually came to very similar conclusions that I and former colleagues that I've always talked about as like the key problems here. A big one is that in San Francisco, the mayor doesn't have true executive authority. So if you think about a mayor as a CEO of a $14 billion entity in San Francisco, the mayor cannot directly hire and fire her department heads. She has to go through commissions to do that. The commissions she doesn't even have full control over because they're split between her and the board of supervisors making the appointments to the commission and things like the board appoints their commissioners. The mayor nominates hers, but then the board has to confirm them. So that's another example of executive authority getting kind of whittled away and diffused across other bodies. To play a little bit of devil's advocate on that, which is some people may say, this is division of powers. This is having checks and balances. So what is your response to that when, when people say, oh, is that a feature of our democracy that too much power is not concentrated? What do you say to that? Because your, I think maybe counterpoint is, if we're an organism that's fighting against each other, we can't get anything done. Or how do you respond to that argument? Well, definitely that counterpoint as an example, but also that this isn't how it was intended to be. This isn't how the city was designed to be governed. This is the reflection of years of supervisors running uh, charter amendments to diffuse power and take it away from the mayor. So it's not like it's always been the case and it's not even the case in any other city. It's not a comparable example throughout how other cities are governed, the way that our power is diffused so dramatically. You were saying it's popular, for instance, a supervisor to pros, let's create a commission on this and that act, which typically the mayor opposes, would actually diffuse power away from the mayor. And if enough of those get passed over time, then you have a situation where the mayor might be a bit hamstrung to what she or he could do. Right. And in doing those commissions doesn't even put power back on the board of supervisors. It puts power into this third party body that no voter knows who they are, nor can we hold them accountable. 
So they can both, the board of supervisors can say, oh, look, I, I created this commission to address homelessness. But now they can say, I'm no longer responsible for solving that problem. I created a commission to do that. But nobody knows who those commissioners are and nobody can hold them accountable. And that pattern has repeated itself on every major issue as it's come up, as I think a way to deflect from having to solve problems and then has led to a city that's become ungovernable. Those are some big examples about the lack of true executive authority. Okay, so that's one. So you need some ability to true executive authority. That's one. What else creates efficiency? Because a lot of people like to point to $61,000 toilets for something or housing that costs us $100,000 and in other cities it costs $10,000. People like to point to that. What else could we be doing? So the other big thing is our board of supervisors. We have 11 districts um, and each district represents 80,000 residents. Only about half of them are registered voters and only about half of them vote in the supervisor races. So you naturally have created this dynamic where to run for supervisor, as you mentioned earlier, you can just get like 6,000, 8,000 votes and you're representing that district, you have a ton of power. The vote margins between winners and losers in supervisor races are coming down to 120, 140 votes. So they're becoming extremely close and it's demonstrating the phenomenon where supervisors are now accountable to such small minority voices of people, but have a ton of power in the overall outcomes of the city. So you compare this having to get, you know, a few thousand votes, a couple thousand votes to win, compared to the mayor who has to carry 175,000 votes to win and naturally has to appeal to a broader swatch of the city, um, which makes the mayor always a little bit more centrist and it allows board representatives to always be further away from the center. Um, and I think that creates this dynamic of an oppositional mayor and board. And really the only solution to that is move to a hybrid board of supervisors where it is fewer districts that are bigger, so they're more reflective of a more diverse point of view. And then you add some at-large supervisors who are responsible for thinking about the city as a whole. That's really the problem here, that nobody at the Board of Supervisors is actually responsible for thinking about the whole city. Their only incentive is to represent their constituents, and it is only when they're thinking about running for higher office that they start to shift their politics. You saw this most recently with Matt Haney, right? He was a member of the Board of Supervisors that was very aligned with the left progressive faction of the board. But as he started to pursue running for the assembly, he shifted a little bit closer and closer to the mayor's politics over time. And what you're saying is that if there's one thing that seems to be a truth about politics is that politicians will operate on behalf of their own interests. And where that interest lies, and if you can align it better then maybe you can get more desirable outcomes. And not because politicians are bad people, but it's human nature. It's part of it. Yes, they're operating in the system that they're in. Let me propose one other thing for you and see what you think about making things more efficient. I mean, I personally believe that San Francisco, one of its issues is good intentions, unintended consequences. Meaning we have good intentions because we want to protect those who are marginalized. We want to support the environment. We want to have these outcomes because we care and we're compassionate and argue we're probably more compassionate than most, which is a good thing. But the problem with the unintended consequences is that that good intention gets turned into a law, which then has to be permitted, which then has to be tracked, which then has to have a system in place for it. And if you, much like you described with commissions that add up over time, if you add up enough of these things, then unintended things happen, like, for instance, incredibly slowing down the housing new development process. And no one was out to do it. In fact, there was good intentions. There's a reason for it. But the cumulative effect is that lots of disruption can happen. Do you agree or disagree that our best instincts have worked against us? A hundred percent agree. Yes, I think for a long time that's been the case. And that's how you end up with a $1.7 million toilet, right? It's layers and layers of laws and processes that all come with a price tag attached that eventually add up to these, these enormous figures. Now, I think the one caveat I would say is there are many people in power who were part of getting to that problem, who are still in power. And when you ask them to revisit and reconcile what's been done and try to work together to streamline it, they don't wanna make any changes. And that's the part where we're getting stuck is that we now know, we've now learned that this is what's happening. We all know that's what's happening, 
But when we ask them to look back at what's happened and think about what could be streamlined, what could we cut out, they're not willing to make changes because they're either wedded to their ideology that that was right. I think there's a lot of ego involved there. And they also know, well, now I've passed this law, this process that some percentage of San Franciscans are expecting to happen. And if I take it away, I lose that support. So that's like a perverse incentive, again, to keep these processes that aren't working in place. And the other thing that is sometimes difficult is until you see like a stat about, let's say, how long something's taking to get through, or you gave a stat about how much something costs, you don't realize the extent of the problem until it sort of like hits you in the side of the head. And what I mean by that is I spoke with recently Jennifer Polka, who founder of Code for America, and she's a big proponent of, well, we ought to like test user flows what they experience. Like if you come in and you want to create some new housing in San Francisco, what do you experience? What offices do you go to? Like you actually map it out. What answer do you get back? What do you have to fill out? How long do you have to wait? You have to actually like put yourself in the shoes of a real person. And to me, I don't know if this is done, but this has so much impact on like all kinds of services that have to be deployed. If you're a homeless person, lots of elected officials are making policies for homeless people, but have they actually been in the shoes and said, okay, I'm homeless. I want to get help. Where do I go? What is the response? How long does that take? Where am I sent? I need to map this out. Could we be doing more just to basically understand what people experience based on the laws we enact or create? I absolutely think we could and we should. There seems to be a real lack of true empathy for people once they're in these systems, in these bureaucratic roles for so long, where they forget that the public is actually your customer and you need to think about how you're providing them with a service because that really is the role of government is to provide a service to the public. And we should be thinking about how they're experiencing that service. I remember when I used to work at the planning department. So I used to review permits at the planning department. So you sit at this front counter, everybody has a shift every other week where you sit at the counter and you talk to the public as they come in with their permits or with their questions. And I think like a big moment for me was experiencing all these small business owners coming in with like their entrepreneurial life dream to open a coffee shop, an ice cream shop, a restaurant, a bar, and the bureaucratic nightmare they would encounter when they got to my desk. And I had to tell them all the things they had to do and how much that was going to cost and how much time it was going to take. Oh, usually a year where they are paying rent for a year because now they've signed a lease. They didn't know that. They've already signed a lease. They're paying rent for a year while they're not having any income coming in. And that is going to financially ruin many people, right? And there is no empathy on the bureaucrat side of, we should fix this problem. Nobody is kind of empowered to say, we should fix this problem. Let's work together to figure out how to fix this problem. A lot of people just kind of do their job. Well, it's my job to administer and enforce this code section. So I'm going to just tell you about it and hold you accountable to doing it. And I think that's where that customer service piece is missing. And it would be amazing if we had this renewed effort to be like, okay, if you come to a San Francisco city department, our goal is to give you a great experience. Like our goal is that you're going to come away being like, wow, thank you. I have these people on my side, to use your example, to help me realize my entrepreneurial dreams. Like, oh my gosh, thank you, Kanishka is at the front desk way back when, when you were doing this to do it. It, it would be amazing. But some of the issues too are incentives just in bureaucratic type jobs. Usually it's to like enforce the things you're supposed to enforce, right? Like these are the rules. My incentive is to make sure those are followed as opposed to being Let's give an amazing experience service. We're all in this together. We're all part of San Francisco. The name of this podcast, we are San Francisco. What can we do to help make this person's entrepreneurial dreams possible and also enable them to give back to the city we love? And that would be a shocking thing if someone said that to you there. But there's a ton of good people working. You know, I talk to people all the time who are working in government, who are smart, who are passionate, who care, but somehow amazing people, smart people, caring people somehow are put in a system where it gets drowned out. It gets forced out. And why is that? We got a ton of good people. The people of San Francisco are our strength. The people in the government are our strength. Yet somehow the system doesn't allow it to come out. And it's frustrating to me because it's like our human capital, this is what we could unleash. I think there's so much we could do if we were aligned and focused and simplified. And I feel like people want to do it. And there's this collective will and all the things we've talked about, like 
why can't we do it? What could we change? And I think you know a lot more than most about you know how this might be possible and how San Francisco's best days could be yet to come. San Francisco's best days are definitely yet to come. I think the way we get back here is remembering what our core values are. So we say we are a progressive city. We are about innovation. We are here for you to to come here. If you have nothing, you start with nothing. We'll give you that leg up. We'll help you get get settled in this country, in this city. But yet we forget that when we're in these bureaucratic roles, right? So in that small business experience, most of the people who are coming in are immigrants coming in trying to open their first business here, right? They see this as their opportunity. And so we are forgetting that our actual value in San Francisco is to help this person achieve their goal because not only are we helping an individual, we are helping our greater society by helping them. I think that the more of us that remember that, the more of us that pointed out that government is failing to achieve what we we're actually saying are our values. It is not compassionate to let people disintegrate from drugs outside. It is not compassionate to let them live outside in tents. That's actually not compassionate to let people make those choices. It's not compassionate to let people who are struggling with mental illness also deteriorate on the street because we're not willing to help them when they can't help themselves. So instead of getting into these minutia around the edges argument about whether or not that's an encroachment on their civil rights, we need to think about the bigger picture. Is that actually good for that person? And how is that, are we helping them or are we hurting them? And how is that good for greater society as well? I think all of our work is about that. And I think we are building that movement to change the city for the good. Um, and we'll be doing a lot more work on that next year. According to Kanishka Chang, one of the fundamental problems in San Francisco is that the power within city government is held by so many different people that no one is actually accountable and in charge. As a result, we've got a big leadership void. Instead of coming together and finding common ground to get things done, every elected and appointed official can point a finger and blame our problems on someone else. Kanishka says that in San Francisco, we actually agree on 95% of what needs to be done, but the remaining 5% gets in the way. But if we could set aside some of those differences and get aligned with a unified 360 degree plan, we could make tremendous progress and much faster than most people think. Kanishka points out that we have a $14 billion budget and tens of thousands of employees in the city. That's more than enough resources. But as a result, the bureaucracy continues to grow and grow and grow without anyone critically assessing what's actually working and what's not. What can we cut? What can we streamline? Kanishka also says that we need elected and appointed officials from the mayor and board of supervisors on down with a broader range of experiences than just having worked in government. Currently, we tend to repeat the same mistakes over and over again because we approach our biggest problems, like for instance, the fentanyl drug crisis in the same cookie cutter way. Imagine if you walked into a city government office or department and it felt like everyone working there had your back and was working hard to help you succeed in whatever your San Francisco dreams may be. What if it didn't feel like the city was blocking progress, but instead was incredibly responsive, efficient, effective, quick to act, and always closed the loop with any resident issue or request? Is that a pipe dream? Is that impossible? Or could we get focused, set clear priorities, and change the culture of our city government? Our elected officials represent us and should respond to what we want them to do we've got to tell them what we want in one collective and unified voice. I'm Ben Kaplan, and remember, we is always greater than me. We are San Francisco.